Have you ever had one of those moments, uh, you know, like a life-changing experience, and you knew in the moment that you were not going to be able to describe that moment to anyone else that wasn't there? You know, one of those, those moments is kind of larger than life. Uh, it's bigger than explanation. It, it's bigger than metaphor. It's bigger than a story. You know, I remember feeling this when each of my three sons were born. If you've ever had a kid or if you've ever watched a kid be born, maybe you can kind of explain or understand what I'm, it is that I'm trying to explain. There are these moments where something happens and you realize, man, that is life-changing. And I'm not going to be able to convey the life-changing reality of that to anyone. I remember holding each of my kids for the first time after that kind of beautiful and disgusting moment of birth and those slimy little cone-headed shaped kids for the first time I'm holding them. And all of these feelings and emotions are kind of erupting in my heart. And then I go out into the waiting room and, and my parents are like, what did you feel when you saw them? I'm like, I can't explain it. Like, I can't describe it because there are some moments, right, that are bigger than explanation. There's some experiences that are bigger than words. Or, or maybe you had a moment that is too big to be captured by a picture or by a photograph. Have you ever found yourself in this unbelievable experience and you look around and everyone around you, they have their phone out and they're, they're seeing this amazing event unfold and they're trying to capture it through the six inch screen in their hands? And you get away from that experience and you look back at the photos and you look back at the videos and although the photos and the videos are good, they were insufficient at capturing the magnitude and the power and the beauty and the glory of what it is that you just felt. I remember years ago, Sydney's family took Sydney and I on this amazing vacation to Hawaii. We could have never afforded to have gone to Hawaii on our own. So it was just kind of this epic gift. And we go on vacation with them. We're there in Maui. And for whatever reason, I've had a lot of great moments with my wife, but this is one moment that just really kind of stuck out to me. It's kind of been tattooed on my heart for years to come. And I think about this moment with Sydney. We're there in Maui, we're getting ready to go eat dinner and we decide, let's go down to the beach, let's take a picture at sunset, post it online, make all of our friends in Nashville jealous about how much better our life is than theirs. And so we go down to the beach and it's one of those nights where God was just showing off. The sunset was extra sunsetishness or whatever, you know, it was like extra beautiful. The, the light uh, was just magnificent that night. I remember the color of the water, just ribbons of blue and green and turquoise, and the water was coming up and just gently kissing the golden sand that was gritty beneath our bare feet as we were holding our flip-flops in our hand. In the background is Molokai, this island that had been uh, created out of a volcanic eruption. And there, Sydney and I are on the beach in the midst of this sunset, this incredible moment where like, Let's capture this picture. And so he takes this picture that for the next four years would be the screensaver on my computer, the, the, the backdrop on my phone. And every time I look at that picture, as great as it was, Sydney looking beautiful, me looking fine as always, you know, I'd, I'd look at that, why do you laugh? You know, I'd, I'd look at that picture and go, as good as the picture was, it wasn't big enough to capture the moment because there's some moments that are beyond words. There are some moments that are beyond pictures. There are some moments that are beyond description. And the, the story that we're gonna look at tonight in Mark chapter nine, you've gotta understand this from the get-go. It's been one of the things that's been intimidating all week as I've thought about how do I stand up here and teach this? The moment in Mark chapter nine is one of those experiences that is beyond words. It's, it's a story that can't be captured with a few metaphors. It's a story that can't be captured with just a few details or a few facts. In fact, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, all guys that took a stab at writing the gospel under the influence of the Holy Spirit, all tell this story just like a group of college buddies sitting around saying, hey, you forgot this detail. Hey, you forgot this idea. There is something amazing happening because it's here in Mark chapter nine that the disciples are gonna get a vision of Jesus up on the mountain that will sustain them as they walk through the heartache of the valley. 
And this is going to be the big idea that you're going to see just kind of coursing through Mark chapter 9 as we read tonight. The disciples are going to get a vision of Jesus on the mountain that will sustain them and empower them and encourage them as they walk through the heartache of the valley. And so Mark chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 2. Open up your Bibles with me if you have a Bible. We're going to start Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus has just had this larger-than-life conversation with the disciples. They've said, you're the Messiah. He says, you're right. Now let me tell you about the path that your leader is getting ready to take, and it's the path that you as my followers are gonna have to take. And so Jesus takes them on one last field trip as they start heading towards Jerusalem for the cross. Mark chapter nine, starting in verse two. We're gonna go verse by verse and just try to let this weird story kind of capture hearts and imaginations. It says, after six days, six days after the conversation about his Messiahship, Jesus took Peter, James, and John And he led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. Now, I want to stop here for just a second. I want you to picture this. They've just had this conversation in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was kind of the Las Vegas of their day. What happened in Caesarea Philippi stayed in Caesarea Philippi. They were there in the middle of decadence. They make this proclamation, Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. Yes, you're right, guys. Now, let's go to the cross. Let's take the path towards suffering. Let's take the path towards rejection. And the disciples didn't know what to do with it. And so Jesus is gonna take them on a bit of a field trip, on a bit of an excursion, and he knew that before they could handle the road to the cross, they'd have to catch a glimpse of his glory. So he takes them up on this mountain, and we don't know exactly which mountain this is. Uh, The closest mountain to Caesarea Philippi was a mountain mountain called Mount Hermon, still there to this day, because mountains don't disappear. But it's this huge mountain, and I don't know what you picture when you picture Jesus and his disciples, but for some reason, maybe it's because I grew up in church and grew up going to VBS, but when I picture Jesus and his disciples walking around, I always picture him in like a long white robe with a blue sash. His hair is always like perfectly straight. The disciples are wearing those sandals that are tied up to their knees for some reason. Do you know what I'm talking about? And Maybe not, okay. So uh, he and the disciples are walking in those white robes, blue sash, and for some reason, they're always walking through like fields of dirt. Like everywhere the disciples were, it's just like dirt everywhere. And that's kind of the way that I picture Jesus and the disciples. And so when I picture them like walking up the mountain, I picture them just walking up this dusty, dirty mountain in the middle of the Middle East. The problem with that is that's not what this mountain would have been like. Mount Hermon is this like gorgeous mountain, 12 miles from Caesarea Philippi. It would have taken them one day to walk there from where the conversation in Mark chapter eight took place. And year round, the top of that mountain is covered in snow. It's gorgeous. You can see the holy lands. And Jesus and his disciples are making the adventure up the mountain. And he knows that before they can embrace the tragedy of the cross, they have to encounter his glory on the mountain. And Jesus begins to take them higher. And so as you picture this story unfolding, picture yourself in Colorado. Picture yourself climbing up a scenic view trees and snow and wildlife and Jesus is taking them to the top of Mount Hermon. It keeps going like this in verse two. This is where it gets really weird. It says, and then, in the midst of the snow-covered mountain, it says, and then Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes were dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the entire world could bleach them. Now, this is the part of the story that gets really strange. The disciples had climbed up to the mountain. They're up there for a couple of days. And all of a sudden, Mark begins trying to describe what goes on, and it's a moment that is bigger than words. It's a moment that's bigger than explanation. The only word he can think to use is transfigured. In the original language, it was the word metamorpho, where we get metamorphosis from. Mark is saying, if I could describe what was happening to Jesus, 
He says it, it was like a caterpillar that was shedding its cocoon and becoming a butterfly. There was this moment where Jesus' physical appearance literally changed. When Luke tells this story, he says that Jesus' physical attributes were transformed in front of their eyes. That all of a sudden, Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, begins to shed the costume of humanity, and the disciples begin to see Jesus in all of his unrestrained glory, in all of his godness, all of a sudden they're seeing Jesus as he actually is there on the mountain. Now, this is a weird story. This is like something out of Harry Potter where they drink the potion and everyone's faces start to change. Or it's like a, a bad drug experience in college that some of you maybe had. It's this, this weird moment, right? It's, it's not what you would expect. And yet this is the picture Mark saying, I don't know how to describe this. We're there on the mountain. And Jesus, his physical appearance began to change before us. Some of you uh, have grown up in church, maybe you've read the end of the Gospels, you know where the story ends. Do you remember after Jesus is dead for three days and raised from the dead, he keeps running into all of his closest friends and none of them recognize him at first? I used to always think about how weird it is, like you've been with this guy for three years, he's only been dead for three days, how come you don't recognize him? And here's why they didn't recognize him, because when Jesus came back from the dead, he didn't come back in just a humanly form. He didn't come back just as a carpenter or rabbi. He stood back among them in his resurrected state, in his resurrection body, which we'll talk about in a few months from now. That all of a sudden they were seeing Jesus as he would be after the cross. One of my favorite parts of going to the movies are the previews that come before the movie. Because previews give you a glimpse of what is getting ready to come. And Jesus knew that over the next few days and few weeks, they would see his face and his body disfigured on a cross. They would see his spiritual authority questioned and tested. And Jesus knew that what they were getting ready to see was going to be brutal, and so Jesus gives them a preview of what was coming after he raised from the dead. And Mark says, I don't know how to describe it. We're on the mountain there in the snow. Jesus is transfigured, he changes. The story keeps getting weirder. I keep going, verse four. It says, and then there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And when Luke tells us this, he says they were talking to Jesus about his journey to the cross. And so just picture this, you're in your quiet time tomorrow morning, you're, you're reading the scriptures, you're praying, you're meditating on God, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up in front of you and you see him in all of his unrestrained glory. But to make things better, it wasn't just Jesus, all of a sudden Moses and Elijah both appear and they start talking to Jesus and all of a sudden you find yourself front and center, eavesdropping on this epic conversation between Jesus in his resurrected state and Moses and Elijah, both who had been dead for more than a thousand years at this point, standing on this mountain covered with snow overlooking the Holy Lands. What a moment. And they're standing there in, in, in this place, seeing these things unfold and the disciples are trying to get their minds around what it is that's going on. Moses, if you haven't read the Old Testament, is the guy that wrote the first five books of the Bible. He's the one that God had raised up and used to lead the Israelite people out of slavery. Elijah was the first of the prophets that started pointing to the coming of the Messiah. They started predicting that one day Jesus would come and all of a sudden Peter, James, and John find themselves standing front and center to this conversation on the mountain with the transfigured Jesus. Elijah and Moses are there. Keep going, verse five. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. 
Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because he was terrified. You know, some of us, when we get scared, we get quiet. And then some of us, when we get scared or nervous, we start talking like idiots. And Peter kind of fell into the second category here. He sees this unbelievable moment. Jesus has been transfigured. All of a sudden, Elijah and Moses is showing up. He's trying to get his mind around what's going on. And Peter doesn't know what to say. And so he just starts talking. And I love his statement. He says, it is good for us to be here. Have you ever like found yourself in one of those moments that you just didn't want to leave? Like if you could stay there forever, if you could push the pause button on life, that'd be the moment. I remember when Sydney and I were on the last night of our honeymoon, we got online, wellsfargo.com, we're looking at our online checking account, trying to figure out, is it possible for us to stay here for two or three more days? Is it, is it possible for us to get a job at the Walmart here on the island and never go home? I mean, this is, this is like paradise, we don't want to leave. Have you ever had one of those experiences? So good that if you could just push pause, you'd stay there. Maybe it was that road trip with your friends. Maybe it was the first kiss of someone you love. Maybe it was an experience where for the first time in your life, God became more real than just a story in a book or a song that you sing. And Peter looks at Jesus and he's like, man, this is awesome. You're transfigured, Elijah and Moses is here. Forget the mission, forget the cross, forget my wife and children, like leave it all at the bottom of the mat. Let's just stay here. And I love his proposition. He looks at Jesus and says, let us build three shelters, one for you, Moses and Elijah. I don't know why he didn't offer to build six, one for Peter, James and John. Maybe they were gonna room together, I don't know. He's like, I'll room with you, Jesus, James, you're with Elijah, John, you're with Moses. This is the way it's gonna work out. I don't know what he's dreaming up, but there's this moment. And he says, I wanna be here. I don't ever wanna leave. And they're there on the snow-covered mountain. Jesus has changed before them. They're getting a glimpse of his unrestrained glory. Elijah and Moses show up to have this conversation about the cross. The disciples don't want to leave. And the story gets better, verse 7. It says, and then. (laughs) It's like, what else could happen? It says, and then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud that said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Peter, James, and John, they were all good Jewish boys and they knew the story from the book of Exodus. They knew that the presence of God was represented by a pillar of cloud as he was leading the Israelites through the desert. They would have remembered the story that took place on another mountain called Mount Sinai when the, the, the cloud of God's presence came down on the mountain and God spoke to the Israelite people for the first time audibly to the entire nation at one time in the book of Exodus. They would have known those stories and for the first time they find themselves not witnessing the power and the presence and the revelation of who God is from a distance, but they find themselves standing right in the middle of the cloud itself. And here they are on the mountain, Jesus has been transfigured, Elijah and Moses are there and all of a sudden a cloud begins to settle on top of them. Let your imagination grasp the weirdness of this story. Don't picture a fog or a mist, picture a thunderstorm so close your bones can feel it. When I was in high school, I remember one day going into my job and it was pouring down rain, thundering and lightning. I was running into the front door of the place that I worked and about 30 yards behind me, lightning struck a man that was in the parking lot. And at first we didn't know what it was. It just sounded like a bomb went off. We could all feel it in our bones. Everyone just kind of hit the ground. He lived, he's okay. But it was this moment where the power of the storm was so close it put us on our faces. When Matthew tells this same story, On the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that when the cloud came down, the disciples laid on their face in utter fear because the presence of God was so close and so thick and so near. So here they are with Jesus, the snow-covered mountain, their faces now in the snow, 
Elijah and Moses in the presence of God and the voice of God says, this is my son, this is the one I love, listen to him. And Jesus knew that the disciples, if they were gonna make it through the heartache of the valley, had to come face to face with his glory and his grace on the mountain. So when the cloud went away, verse eight, they looked up and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them the orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. I love verse 10. And then they kept this matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. I love that just kind of beautiful human moment where they've been with Jesus, they've seen Jesus, they've declared who Jesus is, they've been on the mountain in the presence of Jesus, and then they're walking down the mountain and they go, Jesus, we still don't get you. We still don't understand you. And there's this moment in Mark chapter nine where as they're getting ready to head to the cross, Jesus knew that before they could handle the cross, They had to handle the glory. And so all week long, I was wrestling with this story and going, okay, God, what is it that they saw? What is it that they encountered on on the mountain besides just the weirdness, besides the light of your glory, besides Elijah and Moses? What is it that they saw that would sustain them as they went through the valley? What is it that you wanted them to see, Lord, as they went on the valley, in the mountain as they prepared for the valley? And there were two words that kept coming to my heart as I was reading the story this week. And I don't know if you take notes, but I'd encourage you to at least kind of take a mental snapshot of these two words as we try to put this story into our frame of reference. I think there were two things that the disciples encountered in this vision of Jesus that would prepare them for the valley. It was glory and it was grace. I think Jesus knew that the vision that they needed on the mountain was a vision of both glory and grace because only glory and grace could sustain them in the midst of the valley that was gonna be filled with hardship and suffering and persecution and fear, even death and crosses. I want you to think about this word glory for just a minute. It's a weird word. We don't typically use glory unless you're reading the Bible or talking about your high school football days. Glory is just not a word that we throw around a whole lot, but glory is this all-encompassing word that's used to talk about the most beautiful of most beautiful, most significant of most significant, most important of the important. So if someone is glorious to you, it means that maybe they're most attractive physically. If someone is glorious to you, it means that their opinion of you matters most. We all have people or things in our lives that we consider to be glorious. And here on the mountain of transfiguration, the first thing the disciples are gonna encounter is the unrestrained glory of Jesus. For the last three years, they've seen him as a teacher, as a rabbi, as a carpenter, as a miracle worker, as a, storm, as a storm calmer, as a dead raiser, as a sick healer. But this moment on the mountain, they're gonna see Jesus as he actually is. Jesus is gonna take off the costume of humanity for just a few quick minutes. They're gonna get a glimpse of the one that they've been dining with, the one that they have been talking with, the one that they have been learning from the last three years. And it is gonna be this glimpse of glory that will prepare them for the tragedy of the valley. It's gonna be here on the mountain that they're gonna see the glory of Jesus's physical beauty in all of its unrestrained nature. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but you know, when you read through the Bible, it tells us over and over and over that Jesus in his human form was not much to look at. He, he was not a looker. When Jesus came from heaven to earth, it was not just enough for him to empty himself and come as a human being, but he came as a poor, homeless human being who was physically unattractive. Jesus did not want anything about his life to give him an upper hand. 
And yet this is not the way that it's gonna be in the kingdom of heaven. That after the resurrection, when Jesus came back from the dead, all of a sudden the disciples began seeing Jesus as he actually was, the centerpiece of all creation. Everything beautiful you've seen in this life is but a shadow of the one that created it in the first place. Every beautiful piece of art, every beautiful face, every beautiful sunrise, every beautiful overlook from the side of a mountain, every overwhelming scene that you felt as you sat on the beach and watched the waves roll in, every sunset, every song, every look into the innocence of a child's face, every glimpse of beauty is like the appetizer for the main course. And the main course is Jesus Christ. He is the one upon whom your eyes were made for. I know this is a crazy thought. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you see someone who's so attractive you just can't help but look at them? I know it's what you feel most weeks probably when I'm preaching, you're looking at me like, man, that's a terrible joke. We'll never use that one again. Have you ever found yourself in one of those moments though when you like look at someone and go, wow, man, they're amazingly good looking. Or you've seen something that's just breathtakingly beautiful. Your eyes will gaze upon Jesus for all of eternity and never be satisfied. You'll never get tired of looking at him. You'll, you'll, you'll never get exhausted with his kindness and his love and his grace and his power that you see upon his face. It's gonna, it's gonna be an indescribable moment. Mark is trying to describe it. He says, I can't even tell you what happened. He says, we're there on the mountain and all of a sudden, the, the glory of Jesus is unrestrained. We saw it physically. But it was more than just a physical revelation of his glory. It was a spiritual revelation of his glory. He says, Jesus was transfigured and all of a sudden, it wasn't just Jesus anymore. There was Moses and Elijah. Moses, who was like the ultimate spiritual leader, wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Elijah, who was the ultimate prophet who kept pointing to Jesus. He says, in that moment, we saw Jesus and his spiritual glory was revealed in ways that it had never been. We realized that Jesus is not just another teacher amongst teachers. He's not just another Moses. He's the one to whom Moses was pointing. Jesus is not just another prophet. He's the one to whom Elijah was pointing. Jesus is not just another voice or another teacher. He is the teacher of teachers. He is the voice among voice above voices. Jesus is not just another spiritual opinion on the buffet of spiritual democracy for us to pick and choose from. We like this, what he says. We don't like what this he says. There was this revelation of his glory that they had on the mountain and all of a sudden they realized, wow, Jesus is unlike anyone else. And they were gonna need this vision of glory if they were gonna make it in the valley. His physical glory was revealed. His spiritual glory was revealed. His relational glory with God the Father was revealed. So there they are in the snow, the clouds come down. Jesus' beauty has been revealed, his spiritual authority has been revealed. And all of a sudden, the voice of God, I mean, what does the voice of God sound like? Maybe James Earl Jones, I don't know, but just this deep, thundering voice of God says, this is my son, this is the one I love, I want you to listen to him. And I love this picture because Jesus knew that in the valley, the disciples were gonna see his glory questioned, they were gonna see his opinion um, lowered. They were gonna see his authority come under attack. 
But it was going to be here on the mountain that they needed the clarity that came from the voice of the Father that said, this is the one that you listen to. This is the one that you love. This is the one that you follow. We live in a world that is so spiritually confused. We live in a culture that is so spiritually upside down and so spiritually murky. And so many of us, even in the community of faith here, even in a place like Ethos, really struggle to know whose voice matters, whose opinion matters. And it's here on the mountain of glory that the disciples hear the voice of the Father saying, this is the one whose opinion matters, listen to him. And they see the glory. And Jesus knew that before they could handle the cross, they had to handle the glory. That before they could endure the, the shame and the pain and the rejection of the valley, they had to see a preview of what was gonna come on the other side of the valley. And what the disciples get a glimpse of is a glimpse of the glory. But they don't just get glory on the mountain. I love the second thing that I think you see as I was praying through this week. The second word that kept coming to my heart is they get a glimpse of grace. They get a glimpse of Jesus' grace. And this is gonna be a grace that is both witnessed and a grace that is experienced. And I think in order to see the grace, like we have to really go kind of beneath the surface of this story. You can't just read it on the most basic, shallow level. You have to keep kind of diving in. But I think this story is one of the, the clearest pictures of grace in all the scriptures. And so let's start with the grace that they witnessed. So here the disciples are on the mountain of glory. The cloud has come down. Jesus has been transfigured. And all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses are standing there talking with Jesus like friends. Now, for us, you know, thousands of years have gone by, and we only know Moses and Elijah as the biblical heroes that we kind of hold them up to be. And sure, God used them to do amazing things, but over and over in the scriptures, it's made quite clear that although God used Elijah and Moses in incredible ways, they were just ordinary people. Just ordinary people used by God. And here all of a sudden, these ordinary people find themselves standing with Jesus face to face a thousand years after they had died, talking like friends about the reality of the cross that Jesus is getting ready to endure. Let's just take Moses for a second. Do you remember his story? When he's 40 years old, he murdered somebody. That's not a good start if you wanna be a biblical hero. He murders somebody. 40 years go by. Kind of the next big thing that we see in his life is he abandons his family. A lot of us, when we think about Moses, we don't think about a guy that is going through marital issues, but you get to Exodus chapter 18 and Moses has left his wife and kids behind. And it takes his father-in-law to bring his family back to him. Do you remember that story? The only reason they reconcile is because his father-in-law brings them back. And so now you have Moses the murderer, uh, murder, uh, Moses the man whose marriage and family is failing. And then how does Moses' story end? His story ends by disobeying God. And instead of going in, into the promised land that he'd been leading the people towards for 40 years, he gets put in cosmic timeout. He dies outside of the promised land. He doesn't get to go to the very place that he'd been trying to lead the people for 40 years. That's where his physical story ended. But you come to Mark chapter nine and a thousand years have gone by and you discover that Moses' failures in this life had not forfeited his future in the next life. Moses' failures in this life had not forfeited his future in the next life. And your failures in this life do not forfeit your future in the next life when you're standing with Jesus. And I think there's a reason that Moses and Elijah wanted to talk to Jesus about the cross. 
And I think the reason they wanted to talk to Jesus about the cross was because they knew the only reason they could be standing there talking face to face with Jesus like a friend was because Jesus was getting ready to do what Jesus was getting ready to do. I want you to think about the mountain that they're standing on with Jesus here, Mount Hermon. It was the very mountain that Moses was forbidden to set his foot on when he was still alive. And here he is in the kingdom of God, talking with Jesus like a friend, not because of what Moses had done, but because of what Jesus was getting ready to do. And the disciples would need this picture of grace when they found themselves struggling in the valley. But it wasn't just gonna be grace witnessed, it was gonna be grace experienced. Because the cloud would come down on the disciples. They'd be terrified, scared to death. And I just want to point this out. You know, uh, so many times in my life, especially, uh, you know, years ago when my mom got cancer, there have been different points in my life where I've kind of faced suffering of different levels. And if you've ever faced suffering, if you've ever faced hardship or uncertainty, there's this tendency, sometimes in the midst of our pain, to say very foolish statements. But I remember saying this years ago when my mom was sick and not doing too well, I remember saying, you know, one day when I stand before God, I've got some questions to ask him. And he's gonna have to give me some answers. And some of you have said things like that before. Like one day when I see God, I've got some questions. He's got some things he's gotta say. And I just, I wanna say this in love to you. I know some of you don't know me, but I wanna say this with absolute love. When you stand face to face with God, as all of us will, when you stand face to face with God, he will not be answering to you you'll be answering to him, whether you love him and believe in him or not. And there's this moment where the disciples on the mountain get a glimpse of the unrestrained glory of God and it puts them on their faces in fear. I think sometimes in our American watered down, Jesus is just Mr. Rogers form of Christianity. Jesus becomes a friend and a friend next to us, which means Jesus is along for the joyride of any decision we wanna make, anything we wanna believe, anything that we wanna do. And I think the great challenge of the American church is not our lawlessness. It's not that we break the laws of God freely. The great challenge of the American church is our awlessness. There is no fear, there is no reverence, there is no love for the Holy One of God that you and I will stand before. And until there is an understanding of who it is we will stand before, we will never enjoy the grace and the gift of what's been given to us in, in, cross, in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the disciples find themselves overwhelmed with the glory of God on their faces in fear. And one of the greatest pictures of the grace in Matthew chapter 17, when he's telling the story, it says that as they're on their faces, Jesus puts his hand on their shoulder and he says, stand up, don't be scared. And Jesus is showing the disciples the reason you can stand in the unrestrained presence of a holy God, just like Moses and Elijah are doing, is because I'm here with you. The reason you can pray, the reason you can sing, the reason you can worship, the reason you and I can go towards our death with total confidence that we've been saved by Christ is not because of the good works you've done, but because of the work that Jesus was getting ready to do in the valley. And he had to show them that their failures would not forfeit their future as long as they were standing with Jesus. And it was gonna be on this mountain that they had to encounter both the glory and the grace of Jesus if they wanted to be faithful in the uncertainty of the things that they were getting ready to experience in the days ahead. I think it was important for them, and I think it's necessary for us, that if there's no view of God on the mountain, there's very little faithfulness in the valley. 
So this week I was wrestling with, okay, God, how's this play out? I'll just kind of give you two simple examples from my life, how this plays out. I go, how does glory strengthen you in the valley? Like, how does a vision of Jesus' unrestrained goodness prepare you when you're in the valley? And I kept thinking of my son, Jack. You know, last year on his uh, second birthday, we gave him a pair of goggles. He wanted a pair of goggles, just like his older brother, Micah. And so, you know, we spared no expenses. We spent $9 for the full face goggles that would cover his nose, that would cover his eyes with a, an attached snorkel. I mean, we, we wanted this kid to know that we loved him. And so we bought him these $9 goggles and he, he unwraps them and he's so excited and he immediately puts them on his face. He's not in the water, puts these goggles on his face and he immediately starts complaining that he can't breathe out of his nose. He's like, he's like, dad, I can't breathe out of my nose. And I'm like, I know, buddy, like, you're supposed to use a snorkel. It's meant for the water. It's not good for land. And so he takes the goggles off and he's upset because they're not comfortable. And for the next year, those goggles were his favorite toy. But they were a toy that he never used properly. And so he'd walk around the house with those goggles in his hands. We'd take him to the YMCA swimming pool. And I kid you not, he'd be splashing around in the pool holding the goggles in his hands. He would stick his little two-year-old face under the water with his eyes open and then complain that the chlorine was burning his eyes. We're like, dude, put the goggles on. And he would never put the goggles on. And so this year, when summer rolled around, we took him back to the pool. We put the goggles on his face and maybe in an act of, you know, epic parenting or maybe it was abuse, I don't know. I stuck his head under the water with the goggles on and, and he comes up out of the water and he goes, I can see, I can see. And I'm like, I know, I've been trying to tell you, you know, you're not gonna be in the gifted program at school, clearly, you know. That's, that's what goggles do, you can, you can see. And all of a sudden, this thing that he had had with him the whole time opened his eyes so he could have the vision that he was meant to see all along. I think glory, glory of Jesus are the goggles that help us to see in the murky waters of our culture. It's the glory of Jesus, his, his unrestrained beauty, his unrestrained spiritual authority, his unrestrained relationship with the Father. It is the glory of Jesus in the midst of a world filled and, and kind of weighed down with all kinds of spiritual opinion. It's, it's the glory of Jesus that help us to see, that help us to walk, that help us to be faithful, even when everything and everyone around us is collapsing. Have you had time on the mountain recently to see the glory again? Because if your vision of glory is failing, your faithfulness in the valley will fail as well. But I love it because Jesus knew they needed more than glory. They needed grace. Glory was not gonna be enough to, to keep the disciples from screwing things up. Maybe you remember this, they kept, captured this vision of Jesus' glory and then every one of them fail. Every one of them messed things up. It would be the glory of Jesus that would give them the courage to keep walking into the valley, but it would be the grace of Jesus that would invite them back to the mountain after they kept falling and struggling and dying in the valley. Do you remember what happened after Jesus was raised from the dead on that first Easter Sunday morning? He's raised from the dead. He appears first to a group of women there at the tomb. And what does he say to the women? He says, go tell Peter and the other disciples that I'm alive and that they need to meet me at the mountain." And I love that the first place the grace of God invites the disciples to join them after the resurrection is back at the mountain. Because it'd be at the mountain that once again, they'd catch a glimpse of the unrestrained glory of God and the kindness of his grace that would welcome them back after they failed him in the valley. And he'd say, now the world is ours to conquer.
The disciples needed more than glory. The disciples needed grace. And you need more than glory. You need grace. I can't tell you how many times I've been here on a Sunday night. Man, I've caught a glimpse of God's glory and then I've just royally screwed things up on Monday. Or I've had a, a moment of just unbelievable time with God on Tuesday. And then before I get home to my wife and children, I blow it all. I can't tell you how many sermon times I've preached a sermon on a Sunday. Before I even get to prayer gathering, I've struggled to believe and walk in obedience to the very thing I've just spoken to you. If glory gives us vision, grace gives us confidence to come home when the vision wasn't enough to keep us strong. And it's here on the mountain that Jesus gives them a vision because before they could handle the cross, they had to see the glory and they had to touch the grace. Our hearts long for the mountaintop moments, right? We long for those mountaintop moments. But have you ever noticed that there's a certain place on the mountain where things quit growing? They call it the tree line. If you've ever been out west to the Rocky Mountains, there's a point on the top of the tallest mountains where nothing can grow anymore. Trees don't grow. Vegetation doesn't grow. Animals can't live. It's, it's too high. The, the top of the mountain is meant for perspective. But it's in the valley where things grow. It's in the valley where things uh, thrive. It's in the valley where things are living and dying and struggling where the life of God that is seen on the mountain comes to bear in the life of God's people that are walking. And so the disciples see it on the mountain. They say, hey, Jesus, can we stay there? He says, nope, can't stay there. There's work to do in the valley. Let's go. They go, if you had your time on the mountain, have you, have you breathed in the air of his glory and grace? Have you caught a vision of the unrestrained, unmatchable, incomparable person that is Jesus Christ. For me, I've got to go to the mountain daily. I've got to go to the mountain each week. I've got to go to the mountain in various seasons to catch a glimpse of the glory and grace so that I can thrive in the valley once again. May we go to the mountain. May we see the glory. May we handle the grace so we can live in the valley. Let's pray together as we get ready for communion. Father, thank you.